with a certain ideology. Um, you know, that's what I'm really trying to get at. But so they, it sees these two movements as equal, as but, morally equal. But the soldiers involved in the alleged crime. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it treats those as individuals. I mean, these are individual IDF soldiers. There's, there's no reference to Israel as a collective entity? They, like, they don't treat Israel as a collective? I don't think so, no. Okay. No, no, it's just, again, these reports just generally talk about, you know, the individual perpetrators of the crimes and, and the, the individual victims. My only suggestion, if you may consider my, my, my comment, is that at the beginning of your paper, um, you sort of set the context and you're looking when you're speaking about the totalitarianism and totalitarianism and you mentioned parenting, and, uh, which I think is very important. I was also thinking that you may want to access Islamic scholars who look at the ideology based on Islamic, um, so the interpretation of Islamic, Islamicization of Islamic uh, culture and text of people like Ajami and Basam Tibi. There's people who are looking at the totalitarian nature of, of these movements sort of from an Islamic perspective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're the ones who label it. I mean, you don't have to look yeah. at European scholars. Um, they they use the concept yeah. of totalitarianism. Yeah. Another layer of, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Do you think there's, there's an assumption in the human rights community that Israel should be held to a higher standard because it is a democracy in the Middle East, whether it's right or wrong? That's the assumption made. Um. Yeah, I think, um, I do think there is that, I mean, I think that's one assumption um, that, that is there, that, um, um, yeah, I mean, I think it is probably there. There's this reverse racism that, that often plays a part in the work of liberal intellectuals, I think, where, you know, why aren't there so many reports on Saudi Arabia and, you know, Iran, and why, where are those reports? You know, I think there is a reverse racism where we just kind of expect that, and so they don't see it's it's not a big issue to them. So it's a but you know when a, a country like Israel, but it may be some substantive validity to the argument that if you are a democracy, you should have a higher standard than dictatorships like Saudi Arabia. Well, uh, well, in response to that, well, first of all. You know, I would say that, you know, for the most part, you know, Israel does meet that standard. I mean, if you compare what Israel does to, um, you know, the Iranian regime and its repression, you know, even internally of its own, of its own people, um, I think Israel does meet that standard. Of, uh, it does meet a higher standard of behavior than, than those other countries. But my second response to that is I think it's a mistake to um, conflate the argument that Israel should be held to a higher standard with the argument that Israel then doesn't have a right to defend itself. Um, and, you know, so I think that's what often happens, is the idea that Israel should be held to a higher standard really is an argument, ends up being an argument, that Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself. And I think that's um, a terrible error that has been made, uh, you know, historically, where liberal democracies did not Defend them, defend themselves. And if I, if I may be bold, I would even compare Israeli actions to the United States and Russia. I, mean, I was thinking when Obama just signed this nuclear pact with Russia, you know, these are two leaders of nations that have slaughtered in the, in the last several years, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, or tens of thousands at least, of Muslims, uh, and not even really held accountable by any standards. And the Israelis are sort of right on the, the border of this uh, global struggle. and. They're being singled out. So I would even compare the Israeli actions to the United States on, this, on these issues. I'll just be right. Just a question, because I don't know uh, how the uh, Nuremberg trial uh, uh, results are embodied in the international law, and do those human right, rights groups acknowledge these uh, results in any way? Oh, well, from the perspective of human rights groups, yes, they all see themselves as being um, the, the defenders of the Nuremberg legacy in the sense that, well, first of all, that the Nuremberg trial was the first to hold individuals accountable, individual, you know, political leaders accountable for, for state atrocities. So they, they view themselves as continuing the legacy of Nuremberg. Now, do they acknowledge that there's, there are other legacies to Nuremberg? No. I mean, so I'm trying to bring those into the 
into the public debate <laughs> that there is, you know, our understanding of Nuremberg, frankly, is, is very limited. Um, uh, you know, first of all, most of the, his, the, the historical work, and again, probably in German, much there's much more, so I'm limited. <laughs> so I'll rely on you guys to help me. But um, that, you know, we don't even know a lot about what happened in Nuremberg after the first trial, after the, in the international trial, the trials that continued. Um, was Telford Taylor as, as the prosecutor, where there were very interesting prosecutions of the judiciary, the foreign, foreign ministry, um, and these really aren't a part of our uh, collective understanding of Nuremberg at this point. Gentlemen in the back of the uh, I haven't fully worked out my idea, but I have the question of how much does impotency affect these human rights watch groups? Now, they know that if they were to come out and say what the saying was in power, he killed 30,000 cards, they couldn't get 10 people to march on the street. But when you deal with Israel, they can get tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So why bang your head against a wall and show how weak you are that you can't get people to pay attention to the human rights violations in Sudan and wherever else but here it is, you have a democratic country which is changeable, which people, which the government does listen to uh, what's going on, pays attention, as opposed to those who don't. So maybe the, maybe the emphasis or the, or the uh, looking in on Israel may be due to the fact that in these other countries, they would be just showing their impotency. Right, uh, that's a good question, yeah. Um, Right, that they strategically they think they can have more of an impact. Um, I'll think about that. <laughs> it's a good question. I don't have an immediate answer to that. But, you know, possibly it does, and it's something that I'll think about. I'm wondering if there isn't a, uh, a, a basic area here of the liberal fallacy. Uh, and Hannah Aaron dealt with the origins of totalitarianism as an ideological problem. Goldhagen's uh, new book on uh, worse than war deals with it as an ideological factor. And I'm just wondering if uh, one shouldn't uh, set up the different approaches in terms of liberal fallacy versus the ideological construct. And it's the ideological construct that becomes politically difficult at, at this time because you're dealing with large units. Individually, you can deal with uh, trying individuals, but ideological construct comes very difficult. How do you deal with the Dreyfus affair? How do you deal with the uh, totalitarian systems of the Russia, the Soviet Union, and fascist system? Very difficult because it's a larger political question. Yeah. And uh, also, I did some research on Janusz Korczak, uh, and his view in terms of human rights was also the liberal fallacy. He didn't associate that essentially with the demonic. Uh, system he re referred to essentially that, that people had gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if that dichotomy isn't a suitable one uh, the, uh, that you've uh, brought in, and that is the liberal fallacy versus the ideological construct. Mm. Um, okay, I'm not completely sure I understand your question, but I think um, um, you're suggesting that this is like a, a pattern in liberal thought. To the inability to detect ideology. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Well, uh, uh, existentially to define it as ideology, uh -huh. uh, and not just to say it in terms of uh, individual yes. violations. So it's an existential position uh -huh. that Hannah Aaron took in terms of, and that Goldhagen was also taking in terms of eliminationism. Uh, uh -huh. These are much broader categories. Uh, yes. So I'm just raising the, the possibility that these are the appropriate constructs that you seem to be uh, moving into. Yes. Maybe you haven't defined it as such as yet. No, I mean I think I'm. I mean I'm very influenced. Arendt is a major influence on my own thinking. So that's my purpose in suggesting that this is a blind spot which is in the, the human rights prism. Uh, there's a big blind spot, and that blind spot is ideology. And, and why is that? You know, given the fact that these ideologies 
political movements were motivated by ideologies, exterminationist or eliminationist ideologies, when they triumph, it's a catastrophe for human rights, and it always has been. Um, so why is it that they're only able to recognize it after the fact, um, you know, and, and not in the moment before it happens? Why is it a blind spot in that moment? So that's what I'm looking, trying to get at. So take liberty just to, I've repeated this story several times, but something that I think I'm haunted by it. About a year and a half ago, I went to the law school at Yale to try and help to do a joint, I think I've repeated this in the seminar, but I think it's a very important point, to try and do a, a, a joint conference with law school on ISA on, on Iran in terms of its incitement to genocide, and to look at it from an international and legal perspective. And there were three leading scholars at the law school who didn't think it would be an appropriate subject to analyze for several reasons, one in which they believe that US law supersedes international law number one, and with the First Amendment and their commitment to the First Amendment and the freedom of speech, that they believe, and this is uh, and there's precedent for this, that, that incitement to genocide only becomes genocide once the genocide is committed. So there has to be a genocide before you can try people for incitement to genocide, otherwise it's just freedom of expression. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I don't understand that because even in the genocide convention, you see a, a definition of incitement, yeah, right. which is. Yeah. But because so I don't understand. Well, they were arguing because of the First Amendment, everyone has the right to speak, freedom of speech, and you can try somebody for incitement once the genocide takes place. Until the genocide takes place, it's just freedom of expression. But Kevin Cole wasn't one of the three, I'm sure. No, no, he wasn't. Yeah, either. I mean. Right, they I mean, they're just there. quite right. They're trying to weigh the, the, yeah, I mean, the cost of limiting freedom of expression yeah. when you don't have pattern of violence that even resembles yeah. genocide. And, and I think it's a worthwhile debate, I mean, because yeah, there's no absolute position. Terrifying. That's I'm not a legal scholar, but I was just... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That suggests that ideology is a predisposition. Exactly. And you can't deal with a predisposition. But Hannah Arendt did deal with yes. predisposition by naming the totalitarian system as a lethal system. And this is what Golden Hagen is, is wrestling with, really, in terms of how does one move in when it is still a predisposition. And maybe even, I, would, I wouldn't call it liberal fundamentalism, but maybe First Amendment fundamentalism but, but, is an ideology that we need to yeah. be very critical of at some point. Maybe. I have one question. Yeah. So I, I'm, not a, I'm not an American, but like, even in the First Amendment. Neither am I. Even in the First Amendment, it says um, that if there is a clear and present danger, and this is what the yeah. title that Robert Bistrich chose for right. in his book on Muslim anti Semitism, mm -hmm. and, uh, there's no total uh, freedom of speech. No. So you there are limitations. Yeah, you don't have to convince me. Yeah, yeah I know, but. but so these are leading scholars in one of the finest law schools in the world. Yeah. So I would say it's not um, the first amendment. They cannot. Well, they claim it is, and they know the laws infinitely better than I or you. And their, this is their perspective, right? You know, yeah. I'm out of my depth to argue. I, I completely agree with you. With her qualification, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you all recall, said that freedom of speech doesn't give you the right to yell fire in a crowd of theater. Of course. And I noticed I was on C-SPAN, I was really disgusted when a certain party was defending, sort of related to this perhaps, was defending the fact that we should not allow any influence whatsoever from foreign law to affect us. Now this is really hubris. Yeah. It affects this too, I think. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. The US law should never be superseded. Yeah, it's ridiculous. A certain party espoused it more than the other, won't mention names. <laughs> On C-SPAN, they had the uh, uh, Hook TV yeah. this week. They had they the Ramadan. Uh, was it, uh, not Ramadan. Uh, C-SPAN. Tarek Ramadan. Yeah. yeah, and he was denied entrance into the United States, and now he came in, and I tried to hear what he was, uh, his venom, I didn't hear anything there. He didn't, he didn't really come out. But I, I would say, there's, to me, there's an existential situation that Aaron pointed out. By the way, Aaron was one of my teachers in the past. Oh, really? Where did you yeah. study with her? And it, it, How fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited where to hear this. Where, 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 where did you study with her? At New School for Social you Research. You did? You were a student? Yeah, yeah. How but excellent. Her husband, but it was an existential... Oh, you were a student of Hans Blucher's as what? well? Blucher. Yes? Yeah, he was my teacher He was supposed to be an amazing years. teacher, right? Yeah. I mean, he never wrote. He was like a Socrates. He never wrote anything. But 
Um, he was supposed to be an incredible teacher. Yeah, is that yeah fantastic. Fantastic. Wow. His, his lectures are available on the, the Hannah Arendt Center at BART. You can actually download his lectures for anyone who's interested. Very exciting. Wow, I'm so excited to see. But I'm suggesting that it might require an existential philosophy position to take a look at the collective guilt. Uh, whereas the liberal position, essentially, you know, if people yeah. expressing this, and the yeah. Justice Holmes uh, firing, yeah. but how do you bring in action at the right time? And, and I would suggest, to me, the basic Islamic creed at the present time is a totalitarian creed and posits the, the threat to Western society, to Christianity, and what was pointed out about the conflict of civilizations, it's here. And unless we take an existential position, we see it as individual things, you know, a little here, a little there, but it is a much bigger struggle. And we, if we don't put it into the broader conflict, as the Muslims do, they see jihad. So, what? Some Muslims. Uh, so, okay, yeah, uh, okay. So, uh, uh, but dividing jihad in terms of uh, taking over uh, the uh, reins of power to advance Islam, to me, this is an existential situation. And uh, Menajah has expressed this very clearly in terms of the Ummah. He's expressed this in terms of their objective. And I think we're blinding ourselves if we think in terms of the liberal predisposition that you know, yeah. we've got to deal with this individually. To me, it's ideology. And if you don't deal yeah. with the ideology, you're not going to be able to come to grips with this. Right. And on that yeah. very important note, thank you. I'm sorry. No, no, very important <laughs> note. Thank you. And Michelle, thank you for your Any proverb. I love you. So there's an African proverb that says, you got a true understanding of the hunt will only be known when the lions have their own historians. So it's uh, a pleasure to introduce Ulrika Becker. She's going to speak today on post-war anti-Semitism, for, Germany's foreign policy towards Egypt and the Palestinians. Ulrika is a graduate fellow here at YISA. She's currently doing her PhD. She's based at Stuttgart in Germany in the history department. And her dissertation and the, much of her work deals with the Middle East policy of West Germany and issues about anti-Semitism and hostility towards Israel in the Arab world between 1952 and 1979. The analysis focuses on Germans' relations to Egypt and the Palestinian uh, Liberation Organization. Ulrika also did research on the German political elite's relationship to the Nazi past. And she was a, she had a scholarship from the Foundation for the Memoir de la Shoah in France, uh, and, and this has enabled her to do her doctoral studies. Um, and she also did her master's degree thesis on the depiction of, of Israel in the German uh, media. And of course, as many of you know, Ulrika was one of the founders and co-founder of the Middle East Freedom Forum in Berlin which is a non-profit organization focusing on raising awareness about the treatment, or the threat rather, of the Iranian regime to its own citizens and to the region and to a democratic secular, to democratic secular interests in the Middle East. Um, she co-authored a book entitled Gohagen und die Deutsche Linken. Yes. <laughs> translate, please, translate. A study assessing how German, the German left perceived Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners. So, it's an honor and also uh, it was great. I mean, we can part of the group during the year. And... Thank you, Charles. Um, my research project investigates how German Middle Eastern policy dealt with the issue of anti-Semitism and hostility towards Israel in the Arab world between 1952 and 1979. Critical here is that after 1948, a new anti-Semitism emerged that was directed against the very existence of a Jewish state. To be clear, Arab hostility towards Israel is not necessarily anti-Semitic. However, there is a line that is crossed where political enmity opposing Zionism becomes anti-Semitic. This line is crossed, for example, when there is a positive reference to Nazi anti-Semitism or when the acceptance and dissemination of conspiracy theories like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and Zeus. The denial of the Shoah is also an important pillar to this new anti-Semitism. Since 1948, every country that was diplomatically 
involved in the Middle East conflict was confronted with Arab hostility towards Israel and therefore challenged with the task of reacting to such animosity. Herewith, an important question with my research arises. How did German diplomats react to Arab animosity toward Israel? Did Arab anti-Semitism play a role in the think tanks of German foreign policy? And if so, was this topic actually brought up with Arab states? What did diplomats do to confront this problem? While these questions emerged for all diplomats, for German diplomats, more specific concerns had to be addressed. Especially in Egypt, they were confronted with the repercussions of German anti-Semitic propaganda and politics, which many of them had personally designed and had represented only some years earlier. The Middle Eastern policy of the Nazis had been anti-British in design and anti-Semitic in essence. Especially in the second half, uh, second half of the Second World War, Germany had tried to incite Arabs to fight against Germans' enemies via radio propaganda with a distinct anti-Semitic, anti-British, and anti-American makeup. Just uh, Jeffrey Herf just uh, published a book on, on this very good book. The Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Ami al Husseini, was a close ally of the National Socialists. He played a major role in programming propaganda broadcasts. In the post-war years, the Mufti, although he had been involved in war crimes, was, was a figure of considerable political influence in Egypt, and his Nazi-like anti-Semitism first and foremost affected the national movement of the Palestinians. In 1948, the Mufti was one of the most assiduous advocates of a war against Israel. In general, as a political scientist, Fawaz Gerges observes, racist attitudes towards Jews blinded and entrapped Arabs. Then there was the circle of young officers, including Abdel Nasir and Anwar Sadat, who had collaborated with Germany during the war as guerrilla fighters. After the war, in 1952, they took over through a military coup d'etat. In addition, one has to keep in mind that in the first years of the Nasser regime, German, German National Socialism was openly praised in Egypt. All of these factors suggest that Nazi antisemitism had a considerable impact on Arab societies after World War II. As the historian Yeshaya Yelinek points out, Egyptian politicians who met with German diplomats in the post-war years often reveled in the recollection of their common fight against the Jews during the Second World War. The idea of a traditional German-Arab friendship pleased German officials and thus was likewise often mentioned. However, German diplomats were embarrassed when Egyptians noted that the basis of this friendship was established during World War II and when they referred to Jews as a common enemy of Germans and Arabs alike. According to Jelinek, the latter was noted with discomfort because open antisemitism and positive references to national socialism was by then considered unacceptable in Germany. Germany was trying to establish a new image of a democratic state. Um, as such, German diplomats were ex expected to establish new German-Arab diplomatic ties without anti-Semitic or Nazi-friendly undertones. For many diplomats, this was a considerable challenge because there had been little, if any, public debate on NS ideology in Germany after the war. Moreover, anti-Semitism and racism were still quite common for many years after the demise of the Nazi regime. Besides, some diplomats who held leading positions in the new Middle East Department of the Foreign Office since 1952 had also held important position, positions in the Foreign Office during the Nazi regime. These civil servants had contributed to the Nazi policy that was based on anti-Semitism and hostility towards the West and made considerable efforts to mobilize Arab resistance against the British. I want to use now the case of one diplomat in particular in discussing the question of the quite possible transfer of ideas. Wilhelm Melchers had been employed in the Foreign Office since 1922. From 1931 on, he served in the Near East Department 
and in embassies in the Middle East. In December 1939, Melchers was in charge of the Near East Department in Berlin Wilhelmstraße and held this position until the end of the war. During that time, he was in charge of look, looking after guests from Arab state, states in Germany. Amin the Mufti, Amin al Husseini, is such an example of um, is an example of such a special foreign guest in Nazi Germany. After the war, Melchers again held high positions in the Foreign Office. He first served in the personal division, where he was responsible for awarding positions in the highest departments. Then, until 1953. He was once again the head of the Near East Department. Thus, Melchus wielded considerable influence on the policies of the Near East and the re-establishment of West German relations to Arab countries. From 1953 until 1957, he was the head of the German embassy in Baghdad. During this time, he was also in charge of the legation in Jordan and for reports on Israel because the German Federal Republic did not have diplomatic relations with Israel and therefore had no embassy in the country till 1965. In the early 50s, Israel did not want a German ambassador on Israeli soil. But in the autumn of 1955, the Israeli Foreign Ministry decided that diplomatic contacts with Germany could strengthen Israel's position internationally, in particular in regards to countries in the third world. However, Israel was unprepared for Germany's response. Their response was hesitant, and instead of endorsing the idea, Germany dragged out, dragged out talks about establishing diplomatic relations until it became obvious that they were not willing to accept to have diplomatic relations with Germany. In the beginning of the 1950s, Germany had been interested in establishing these diplomatic relations with Israel. Adenauer, the first German chancellor, wanted to present a new Germany to the world. As the US High Commissioner John McCloy observed, Adenauer soon understood that the way Germany acts towards Jews in the future will be the acid test of German democracy. In September 1952, Israel and Germany signed the so-called Luxembourg Treaty that regulated compensation payments to Israel. The Federal Republic committed itself to supply goods in the amount of 3.45 billion D-marks uh, to Israel and to pay 450 million Deutsche Mark to the Jewish Claims Conference. This situation was different in May 1955, so three years later. With the conclusion of the so-called Treaties of Paris, Germany attained sovereignty in its foreign policy. Up to that time, the Occupation Institute of Germany was enforced in which the Allies retained the right to control Germany's foreign policy. While most ambassadors, German ambassadors abroad in 1955 cautiously favored the establishment of diplomatic relations with Israel, German diplomats in the Middle East Department and those in embassies in Arab countries were extremely critical to this plan. In 1956, a secret conference of German ambassadors represented in Middle Eastern took place in Istanbul. The main focus of this meeting was the question whether Germany should establish diplomatic relations with Israel. The German ambassadors to the Middle East unanimously opposed the establishment, um, fearing protests from Arab countries and, as a consequence, Arab diplomatic recognition of the German Democratic Republic, the socialist Eastern German state. They even voted against establishing a trade mission, which was then cancelled despite all prior promises to Israel. Wilhelm Melchers strongly opposed the establishment of diplomatic relations with the Jewish state. His reasons are clearly expressed in a letter that he sent to the head office in July 1955. In this letter, he painted a grim picture should Germany establish diplomatic relations with Israel. He wrote, and I quote him, the establishment of diplomatic relations with Israel would cause a storm of outrage in Arab countries and would inflict serious damage to our political, economic, and cultural interests. It would definitely unsettle the German-Arab friendship and, due to the Arab mentality, would turn friendship into hate 
because the Arab countries would not forgive the betrayal of a good friend. Germany would consequently lose important economic contracts, beside Arab support at the United Nations, and Arab states would support the East German socialist state instead. In addition, the Federal Republic would uh, face heavy losses in the cultural arena. At the conference in Istanbul, Melchers added yet another argument. The lives of German embassy staffs and members of the German colonies would no longer be safe. In short, Melchers in Melchers' opinion, Germany could not afford the step of an eventual recognition of Israel. This assessment was based on his specific analysis of the Middle East conflict, as uh, he explained in detail in another report. In this report, he described the expansionist nature of the State of Israel, which in its present form would establish, establish a bridgehead, providing, providing the basis for future generous expansion. An uncompromising attitude on the Arab side would therefore be understandable, and a peaceful solution to the conflict impossible. The Arabs would feel, quote, uh, the Arabs would feel safe only after the last Jew would, uh, had left Palestine, in his words. The concept that it was impossible for Arab countries to tolerate even a small Jewish minority on Palestinian soil reveals Melchior's radical anti-Jewish worldview. Back to the debate at the conference in Istanbul in 1956. Three counter-arguments were raised mainly by diplomats from the headquarters in Bonn, the seat of the German government at that time. One objection made was that if Germany gave in to Arab pressure, it could be perceived to be susceptible to blackmail in general. A second objection was a concern how the rejection of diplomatic relations with Israel would be perceived in light of Germany's endeavor to rid itself of its Nazi past. The third objection was the assessment that the Arab reaction would not be as damaging as depicted by Melchers, particular, particularly if the recognition of Israel would be carried out with utmost diplomacy. Secretary of State Walter Hallstein claimed that there had been similar pre predictions of German Middle East experts at the beginning of the 50s, before West Germany and Israel had signed the Luxembourg Treaty. Contrary to these fears, the Arab state had never carried out their threats of a boycott. Had the Arab states ultimately accepted a pro-Israel German policy, Wilhelm Melchers protested violently against this judgment in the aforementioned letter. On the contrary, Melchers stated, the Arab diplomats were consistently convinced that the Germans had been forced to sign the Luxembourg Agreement by the Americans. Now, after Germany regained its sovereignty, the Arab world expected that the Germans would turn against the agreement and refrain from any step in favor of Israel. Several factors led to the Arab's perception that Germany had acted under constraint. First, there was indeed a certain pressure from the outside before Adenauer, the first chancellor, approved the payments to Israel. Secondly, many Germans living in, in Arab countries spread the idea that Germany had signed the agreement under pressure. These included especially German military advisors in Egypt. Several officers of the old Wehrmacht, as well uh, the German military, as well as former SS members, were employed as military advisors in the Egyptian army and the war ministry and had close contacts with the Egyptian government. Another example was Yarma Schacht, the former um, bank president and economics minister during National Socialism, who from 1951 to 1954, time and again, came to Egypt as a financial advisor. He had personal access to President Najib. Thirdly, German diplomats in Arab countries delivered contra contradictory messages. In a private audience with the Jordanian king in December 1953, Wilhelm Melchers said that the Germans were in fact not forced to take the step, but the refusal to sign the agreement would have been a self-sacrifice and tantamount to complete isolation. The Arabs could not expect that Germany committed suicide, in his words. Melchers stressed that Germany was very sorry 
that Jordan felt disadvantaged by the Luxembourg Agreement. Finally, the Egyptian historian Vagi Atek quotes Egyptian sources revealing that even Adenauer personally stated in front of an Arab delegation that the issue of reparations to Israel had been regulated in accordance with the wishes of the United States. Secretary of State Halstein uh, reportedly said to the Egyptian Consul General in Frankfurt, I quote, it is not possible not to sign the agreement. Israel through the Jewish magnifying glass in America and England is stronger than one assumes. It is impossible for the federal government to take counteraction, unquote. In those statements, the anti-Semitic stereotype of Jewish power was activated. It is therefore not surprising that many Arab politicians and journalists had the impression that the Federal Republic basically was an anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli country. The German diplomats were aware of the fact that they enjoyed advantages in Arab countries compared to other Western states through the absence of diplomatic relations with Israel. In the words of uh, Legationsrat von Waldo, there has been a strong argument in favor of the Federal Republic. The fact that Germany has, in contrast to other Western democracies, no diplomatic relations with the State of Israel. If we lose this argument in the future, the only defensive weapon we possess will be beaten out of our hands. Um, so to conclude, the main con concern of German diplomats was the fear of the recognition of the GDR. To prevent the recognition of the German socialist state um, was one of the main objectives of Western foreign policy. This aim was also the main motive that led to the decision not to recognize Israel at the Istanbul conference. But there were other reasons too. German diplomats had failed to convey the picture of a new non-antisemitic Germany and had on the contrary obviously flirted with Arab hostility towards Israel. The tone in Melcher's partly desperate sounding letters indicate that he could not imagine finding a way out of the old narrative should Germany decide to establish good relations with Israel. During the conference, there were more moderate and cautious voices too, stating that it would be difficult but not impossible to keep good working relations with both sides, but these voices could not assert themselves against the others. So in 1956, diplomats like Wilhelm Melchers, who had been responsible for the anti-Semitic German propaganda towards the Arab world, were the leading voices in the decision not to recognize the Jewish state. The political signal sent to the Arab states by this decision was that the demand to take part in the radical anti-Israeli policy was no red line for the Germans, but was accepted and therefore a confrontational approach against Israel's successful. Um, this is my presentation for today. My, uh, my dissertation, of course, deals with uh, much more aspects, and I cover the period of the 50s until the middle of the 70s, and so I could not lay out all of this. So if you have any questions. Thank you very much. Could you tell us a bit more about the Luxembourg Treaty? What was the contents of that? And the second question I have is, what about the GDR attitude towards Arabs in Israel? Yeah, um, the Luxembourg Treaty um, regulated the compensation payments of Germany to Israel, and it um, there were the it was very not very easy in the beginning because um, Israel diplomats did not want to. Um, meet German diplomats on German soil, and so that was, they tried to get the aid of the United States and to, um, in the um, negotiations. But um, finally, um, they met, they had several meetings in Luxembourg, and so they, um, yeah, they agreed upon um, compensation payments that were at that time very important for Israel. Uh, um, for economic reasons, um, and um, the amount um, of the um, 
uh, of the sum that was negotiated was 3.45 billion German marks at that time. And so for the Germans, for them, they wanted to, they agreed after a certain time, there were long debates inside the German government if they should agree with this or not and there had been several uh, meetings with US diplomats and others and they suggested that it would be good for, for Germans uh, uh, for Germany if they wanted to join again the Western um, world to, to agree to pay these, um, these uh, reparation payments. The Germans didn't find it difficult to have restitution for individuals. We that would not have. That was not pushed by the U.S. Just the Israel. This is not. I, I did not. I mean, this is another topic. Cause it's a very huge topic, and and there is a there is a, in fact a debate about what kind of pressure um, the United States really exerted or not, and there's a long debate in, among historians. And. What I consider to be important is that the German side, uh, they felt under pressure. So there are quotes from Adenauer saying that the, the Jews are so powerful that it's better to be on good terms with them. And um, Even for the individual, the good one. Um, no, I mean, in, in this time, that the, the reparations payment, the treaty with Israel was more important at that time. Because the so individual this stuff the, came earlier. Individual restitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. I'm not I'm not dealing with it. it this I'm only looking at um, the relations towards uh, the Arab states and what impact has this. That's a huge literature. That's that's a very. What I decided also to only focus on the West, on West Germany, and uh, East Germany has a very, very different history. They were not also not not completely free. I mean, uh, to act on their own, and they had to follow the Soviet uh, policy. And this was, um, um, I mean, after uh, they, it's very obvious that the GDR very early um, decided to use anti-Zionism as a tool to establish good relations with the Arab states. And they did it in a much more uh, op open and obvious way than West Germany. Because West Germany, they had their main allies were, were the United States, Great Britain, the Western countries. And so they wanted to, they really needed to um, depict themselves to be um, reliable Western allies. And for the GDR, it's a totally different story. And so they could openly this, they tried to use this as their capital in the Arab states because they were the weaker part, they were not economically so interested, interesting for the Arab states because um, uh, yeah, economically they were very weak, especially in the beginning of the 50s, and they had nothing to offer. And so they used uh, really this anti-Zionist ideology as a tool for, uh, for their foreign policy. But I'm not a specialist in that, so... And they, and of course, I mean, the, the, um, they re also refused to pay any compensation payments to Israel. This question remained open until uh, 1990, so it was never solved. The, the, the GDR joins the Soviet sort of anti-Zionist uh, propaganda or whatever perspective when? Because it, was, it, it wasn't directly right after the war that the Soviets became anti-Zionist. It was more was later in the 60s and 70s even, it became much more acute. And isn't there a history of the GDR actually supplying military assistance to the state of Israel? GDR? You mean East Germany, East Germany, sorry, East Supplying military assistance to Israel. Mm -hmm. East, East Germany? Mm -hmm. I think they're selling arms. I think yeah. it's a commercial. I don't think I mean, West Germany, this is one, this is, uh, this is uh, what the West, West, West Germany did is after um, this conference that I mentioned, is that West Germany then agreed to secretly deliver weapons to Israel. And this was a kind of um, compensation for the. Yeah, this was later. This started in the end of the negotiations. Started in the end of the 50s, 57. There was one of the first meetings between the defense minister, uh, 
the German defense minister and Israeli uh, defense ministers. And, and then um, I know that it started in the early 60s. But this was West Germany, not East Germany. So then I have two quick comments. So like, you know, I like the sort of the political agenda, if you will, of your work and Jeff Herbst and Matthias Kunzel and people that are looking at the relationship obviously with the Mufti and Nazism. It serves a certain political uh, perspective or political project even that I would subscribe to and for all sorts of reasons. But the thing that disturbs me from an academic perspective is that the links between Nazi Germany and the Mufti and the impact of the radio shows and the, it's never been measured. How do you measure these impacts? That, that's one question. Was there a real influence? Did it really affect the population? Did it affect the policy in the Middle East? One question. How do you ascertain that? Uh, and secondly, um, I lost my train of thought. And, okay, so that's one. And, and secondly, I was just speaking to Brian Shead yesterday about this. In the UK, in sort of race relations and uh, you know the study of migration and national identity and racism, cultural studies in the UK, it's changing. But the demarcation is 1945. So Europe, Europe. British French studies when it comes to migration and cultural identity and race relations, everything starts from 1945 on. If we don't go back and look at the history of colonialism and racism and anti-Semitism and the genocide and the Holocaust and show and all this stuff, everything sort of begins in 1945. So my question to you is, is it so shocking in a sense that you have people who were actors, had positions of influence, power, or socialized and lived in Nazi Germany, who carry on these beliefs. I mean, at one level, it's not very surprising or shocking. Yeah. So how do you, in your general work, do you contextualize anti-Semitism, do you contextualize, yeah. uh, anti do you contextualize the, the, the ideology, the policies in which these people were educated in school and participated before they came to power in post-war Europe? I mean, what you're saying at some level is not, uh, I don't think it's just so surprising. No, but you're right. I mean, maybe I answer this question first. Mm -hmm. um, of course, um, it's not surprising. Um, but one, two points. One is that in Germany today, you have uh, on the popular level and on the scholarly level as well, um, the, the narrative that Germany immediately after the Second World War was pro-Israel, pro-Western, and all these facts are not discussed, are not known, and not mapped and critiqued. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, it's not a surprise, but um, um, I mean, it's, I find it especially, and I look at this not for political reasons, but to, to uh, trace down um, the history of German foreign policy towards uh, ideologies, uh, anti-Semitism, hostility towards Israel. I want to see how it started, and, and one of my, I mean, and this is probably what you refer to, one of my interests is why is um, German foreign policy failing today when it comes to um, confronting the anti-Semitic, and here I think it's very obvious, anti-Semitic threats of Iran towards Israel. And what I wanted to, what I want to do in, with my dissertation is to see how um, how this started and if how you uh, how is the history of um, the ideas of how you con how you confront or not confront or endorse uh, hostility towards Israel and how did this develop during uh, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s? And of course, you have a new gener generation in the 1970s who um, it's another story. I mean, uh, who um, were not uh, had, had not positions were not active uh, during the Nazi time, but still were raised in, in, this, um, uh, in, um, in, in, in the Nazi period. And so you have the narrative shifts. And this is what I, I want to look at how it started, how, what kind of ideas were, um, came from, from the Nazi period, and how they developed and uh, maybe still used today. And so I'm tracing it. Uh, and this was one. Your yeah, and that actually brings me to my final point. And I think and you, and you, you answered before I asked you. It would be amazing, I think, to, uh, maybe your final chapter of your dissertation would be the discourse around uh, Germany's relations and economic and political relations to Iran. 
because there are similar points that you made uh, in your presentation that are echoed loudly today. That if, if Germany sides with Israel, it, it, it will lose its influence uh, in terms of oil and all sorts of geostrategic interests, mm -hmm. and it's better to side with Iran and let business as usual go rather than make so many problems. That's number one. And number two, something that's striking uh, as a guest of your uh, stock of bomb conferences and coming to Germany, but, but particularly at the conference, the, the, um, the elephant in the room is this, and, and it was really shocking to me, was this notion of Jewish power, that, that the stop the bomb, and I think you're very brave for actually doing this, to bring American and Jewish American or Israelis to come and speak to this issue. Uh, and being fun, and that your your question about where you get your money, and who's supporting you, are Jews supporting you, are Americans supporting you? That this is the discourse of your detractors, and to be put into that uh, environment for me was uh, it was a, a, a memorable experience to say the least. <laughs> and that these discourses and these discussions are really very much alive, and it was uh, I was shocked. Maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, maybe, you know, but I was shocked. And, I, and it's, these things are very alive today. And, uh, for these reasons, I mean, this may be looking at the history and trying to understand the, the current context would be very important. Yeah, but, yes, maybe, yeah, you're right. But, I mean, I can, my dissertation, I cannot write about right. everything. So, like, it's, it's interesting. I think, I, I agree, and this is one of the reasons why I started my research, is to see what kind of um, narratives are old and what what kind of narratives do we still have today that were developed in the pre and the immediate post-war period and but to uh, to say something to your first question and this is I think um, very important for the discourse we have today in Germany that people historians and scholars try to deny that there was any kind of uh, that it had any impact, and that uh, that's in the German context, many people don't want to see that that um, the idea of Nazi anti-Semitism had such a big impact. And I think the, the, the point is that, the, from the psychological view, uh, point of view, is that of course, if this is the case, then today um, the question is how do we react? React, and then you have still this uh, special responsibility. I would say. To um, to look or to confront anti-Semitism that was and that had has its origins in the Nazi time, and so there are many historians doubt that there that this had any impact. But I think it's very obvious that it had. I am not a historian. I, I am not an Arabist. I'm I'm not looking. At, I'm more uh, focusing on the German side on on how they dealt with it. So I have to rely on uh, scholars who study Arab anti-Semitism. And I do that, but you can see that, um, I mean, you see uh, how, um, if you look at uh, the work of Gudrun Kremer, for example, who was a professor in the Berlin University, who wrote a book about the impact of Nazis in Egypt. They, they, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they had, there was an NSDAP uh, group in Cairo and in Alexandria, but um, and, um, they, they started uh, campaigns in newspapers and broadcasts, and I mean, she she is one of the one of those who's rather cautious what kind of impact it has. But if you see the patterns of uh, how how um, people uh, um, the anti-Semitic ex expressions in the immediate post-war period, of course you see um, patterns that are you also find in Nazi anti-Semitism, and in addition to that. Um, the Egyptian ministry, they employed not only military advisors, SS people from uh, in, the, in the ministry, war ministry, but also they had German anti-Semitic anti propagandists working in their radio programs. And so there was, of, kind, of course, uh, still there were relations on the personal level, and there were, they used, uh, they, I mean, it was, it's very clear that if you have employ a German Nazi anti-Semitic propagandist in your radio that that this yeah. still had an impact. And he was responsible for the radio programming on Israel, so, yeah. You can see how devastating it was because I'm a sort of a uh, history buff of Sephardic Jews and they were in Morocco and she 
northern Africa for 500 years almost. Apparently, symbiotically getting along, and then in this short period of time, I've not traveled too much in northern Africa. And in some places like Morocco, there's not a trace of anything left, even architecturally, just been devastated. The, uh, the, the effectiveness of the Nazis is propagandist. We have to give them credit. They're incredible. When one move got to Al yeah. Alamein, uh, there was a uh, group in, in Egypt that wanted to, in fact, support the, the German advance towards Egypt. Right? Yes. Was that a substantial movement? Or? I, to be honest, I, I don't know exactly. I only, I only can tell you that the um, elite, the Egyptian elite, who was um, in power after the coup in, in the 1950s, Nasser and Sadat, they were part of it. That was and much so, later. Hmm? Right. We're talking about before. before. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know, but so and the, the, on the long run, um, is this group got, got I mean, they took Censored when he was looked upon as a candidate for a secretary general. That was left out now. Mm -hmm. I never thought of that till now, but I wonder yeah. who kept that out. Yeah, that my main point is, is that uh, when he fled to Egypt mm -hmm. uh, after World War II, he was declared to be a uh, war criminal. He uh, is the cousin of uh, Arafat, I believe. Who mm had? -hmm. The Grand Mufti. Oh, yeah. 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 There's a cousin. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I believe so. Yeah. I read the book. I have some cousins. It's, <laughs> it's Linda's father. I think it's also Maybe cousin. second, third cousin. <laughs> Not a kissing cousin. <laughs> well, unless I misread it, there is in the uh, book The Icon of Evil, which is the story of the uh -huh. Grand Mufta. But um, the point is that uh, with the, uh, he still wanted to eliminate the Jews, and he uh, had a strong following in the uh, in Egypt with the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and the uh, beginning of the PLO. Which goes back to Tariq Ramadan, who just came here and was a fellow at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. His grandfather was the, uh, the head of the, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Were there any so, movements like that before World War II? I, what, now that yes. they speak about this, I'm wondering. I mean, well before, the 20s, 30s? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think the, uh, I think the, Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood started yeah. before yeah. World War II. After World War One, already twenty-four. There are organizations in Iraq that are more of a similar idea uh -huh. that are formed in the nineteen. I think after the Balfour Declaration, they became. Yeah. Ah, nineteen seventeen. Yeah. That's earlier. That's probably a key. 
So maybe one, one more note. Um, I, I see it like this at, at the origins of the conflict. I, I would say there were two national movements. So the origins of the conflict for me is not anti-Semitism, but the way how it was perceived and how you can solve it was very much influenced by this um, Nazi images and about Zionism and, uh, and Jewish power. And so the ones who were uncompromising, like the Mufti uh, and, and others, they, were, they had all this propaganda in their back and they, um, they were um, so uh, strong, um, they were uh, strengthened by this, uh, by this history. And this is what I consider to be very, very important. And yes. <laughs>